Well, let's come to 2 Samuel chapter 14. And let's plant ourselves to start here in verse 21. Sometimes it is very difficult to do the right thing. That is essentially the summary of our study from this chapter that began last week. And that summary comes from the observation that the man after God's heart, David, was internally torn because of a dilemma concerning his son Absalom. And this was the dilemma. The law demanded that Absalom be put to death because he had killed his half-brother. At the same time, David, without the crown, was a father. And as a father, he yearned for the well-being of his erring child, even though justice was demanded of him. So what is David going to do? Well, Joab was observant of the internal struggle that his friend and his boss was dealing with on a day-to-day basis, and so he comes up with a plan. And the plan that Joab comes up with is to bring an actress, a very crafty woman, to present a certain case that would persuade David to finally settle, to settle the struggle and to make a decision instead of wavering between two opinions. Unfortunately, the persuasion is going to lead David to neglect and ignore the law and instead pursue disobedience in the name of love, in the name of mercy, in the name of forgiveness, whatever you want to call it. Nonetheless, it was deviance. It was to stray away from the truth. And this woman's speech that you and I studied last week is sort of a example of how temptation works. Temptation often suggests to us that if we subscribe to the authority of the Scripture, then um, you might be settling for something that is unjust, unloving, unwise, and maybe even unable to bring about satisfying results. In other words, temptation tries to tell you that going with what God said as your best and only option may not be your best option. That there are alternatives. This woman reminds us that human wisdom is right there, ready to tempt to believe something other than what God had declared about the matter. Every single time. Be aware of that. Be prepared for that. And how she presented the clan that demanded justice for that murder that she presented in her story points to that truth. Those people, that, that family that wanted justice in her story seemed to be inconsiderate and cruel. But what David did here Unfortunately, he's going to learn the hard way that no matter how loving or no matter how compassionate an alternative may be, drifting away from the Word of God will always come at a greater cost than obeying it. And that is precisely what we are going to finish studying. The the remaining verses in this chapter are going to compact that truth. That when we are debating between compromise or consecration, we must always trust God's word no matter how painful it may seem or no matter how pricey it may be. Always. 
So the point of this Bible study tonight is to strengthen your resolve and to equip you in such a way that when that time of testing does arrive to your front step, you would have the example of David's scene here come before your mind to remind you of obedience is worth it. It may not even make sense at this point, but I can trust the Word of God. And no matter how appealing or no matter how profitable any other option, especially the options that try to convince you otherwise, should be rejected as soon as possible. I want you and I, as we begin to read these verses, look at three things concerning compromise. And the first thing I want you to see is David's commitment to his compromise. The commitment to his compromise. So we read in verse 21, Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man, Absalom. And Job fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. David's commitment to his compromise is highlighted in verse 21. Verse 21, after realizing and learning that Joab was behind this whole scheme, David gives him the green light to fetch for Absalom. Now you would think that if you've learned that a man like Joab was behind this whole facade, that it would discourage you from moving forward with the idea. Because Joab was not the most righteous roster of David's men. Why agree with somebody who does not agree with the totality of God's word? It makes you scratch your head. But we see here, David obviously is persuaded to pursue and one might object and say, well, David was under an oath. Remember, the woman brought David to such a point where he, he calls upon the Lord's name and invokes his name to essentially seal the deal concerning his judgment about this parabolic incident. And David, in that, actually sealed his own decision concerning Absalom, lest he become a hypocrite by taking back his word. And so one might say, well, we have to have sympathy for David here because he is bound by a promise, a promise that includes heaven's courts, so to speak. But here's my question to you, because the Bible presents vows and promises on a whole other level than we do in this day of age. We can say, I promise or I will, and that really means nothing to us, but in this time, when you made a vow, your life was on it. You would rather die than break a promise. That was the culture. And that's really what God's word wants to instill in his people, that you and I be trustworthy with our word. But is it the case that David was in a position where he could not escape what he had said? That's my actual question to you. Now, you know what will really help? This will, this will, help, the, this will help those who are senior students in our Friday night Bible study. Think back to the book of Judges. Think back to the book of Judges where we studied a tragedy about a man who made a vow concerning what? His daughter. Well, he didn't know at the time that it would be about his daughter. He thought it would be just about hopefully an animal or a beast that would come to 
his sight when he returned from war after God gave him victory. But it, in fact, was his daughter. And he kept that vow. And he actually killed his daughter in the name of a promise. So now, if you were there, you know the answer. You know the answer to what I'm about to say. Was David in a position where he could not escape from his word? Yes or no? Who says yes? Oh, one of those again. Who says no? Who says I don't know? And I don't care who knows that I don't know. Okay, that's okay. I appreciate honesty. I am under the persuasion, according to the scripture, that David had the ability to revoke his promise. Do you know how I believe that? Not because of my subjective reasoning. Leviticus chapter 5. Would you turn to the exciting and riveting book of Leviticus? I don't say that sarcastically. I love the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 5. If you view the book of Leviticus through the new covenant, it's an exciting, exciting read. And Leviticus 5.4, we receive instructions about how one can know relief after making a rash vow. Leviticus 5, verse 4. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil, do you see that? Or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt. Well, let's pause there for a moment, okay? So here's, here's the basis of the instruction. When somebody makes a promise or a vow to do something or not to do something, but then somewhere along that, he realizes his guilt. He realizes that he should not move forward with this. There is a way of escape. And it is here. Verse 5, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed... He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, or a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. So yeah, breaking your vow is wrong in the sight of God. But if you have to break it, if you realize you're wrong in making it or in pursuing and moving forward with it, then there is atonement that is available to avoid it. To avoid it. And that was true for the man that we studied in Judges, and that is true for David right here in this case. What David should have done, if he knew the law, as well as he should have, is pause and apologize for his mistake. I may have made a vow, but my vow was wrong. Excuse me, now I have to go make a sacrifice to God. Instead, he doubles down. Instead, he says, you know what? Let's do this. I grant this thing. Let's move forward with it. And unfortunately, he failed to see the lesson that is for you and I today. And here's the lesson. Based on this instruction and what we see in David's life, no matter how committed you may be to his sin, no matter how deep you might think you are in your wrong, it is never too late to escape. Never. You know, you have some people that rationalize like that. You have some people who get involved in a relationship and they go so far deep in physical intimacy and they think to themselves, well, we've gone so far, why stop now? People actually think like this. Or, or you have people who mess around and are dishonest with their finances and, 
And, and they think that, uh, you know, if I, if, I, if I leave now, it will make a greater mess. Or if I stop this, it will create more problems. And so let me just move forward with it anyway. I'm already this deep. If I get caught, I get caught. What can I do about it? And the whole idea here is, no. Like 1 Corinthians 10 promises us, there is always a way of escape. And like what we see here in Leviticus, we can be assured that we can change courses. And the earlier we do it, the better. Had David had stopped here, had David said, I appreciate your appeal to me and how you're trying to persuade me to make a decision, but this is wrong. I can't do this. Then chapter 15 and chapter 16, and all the tragedies and the following verses and paragraphs would not have happened. Wouldn't have been a civil war, very likely. Absalom wouldn't have died in a tragic way. And many other lives wouldn't have been lost at the same time. And so we have to understand here that David commits to his compromise when he could have escaped from it. And you and I have to understand that the direction of our lives does not have to be sealed by our foolishness. We can actually change course by realizing that God has provided forgiveness at any point of our disobedience. His commitment to his compromise. But the next thing that we see is the compensation for his compromise. There's compensation for his compromise, right? Where do you see that? We see it in verse 22. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So, once he receives the permission to fetch for Absalom, he falls face and he praises David. He gushes out with adulation and appreciation. Whenever you and I deviate from God's word in anything, there will always be somebody who will be happy about that. When we compromise, you'll have people who will be happy about your compromise. There's no doubt about it. And for some, that perceived reward is enough to drift. I'm not saying that David did this because he wanted to make Joab happy, but I'm also saying that Joab treating David in this way did not make it for David to reconsider his choice. And what Joab is doing here is what the woman Tekoa did with David as well. So scroll back here to chapter 14. We're still in that same chapter, but look at verse 17. This is when the woman spoke to David. And she said, and your servant thought the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest. For my Lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. And so here's this woman flattering David. And there's so much irony here. Because she is essentially telling David and crowning David because of his discernment apparently when he lacked it, obviously. And then more than that, she comforts David by invoking God's blessing upon him for making this decision. And so here, what, here's what you and I have to understand. We have to be very careful of those who try to soothe our conscience through flattery or through vain and empty promises. There are people who make compromise much easier for us, who will celebrate our compromise who will encourage it, who will dismiss the consequences of it, who will, who will try to keep your eyes on the prize for the decision that you made. And that is a scary thought. 
There's erroneous pronouncement of God's favor upon foolishness. There's this idea of support and people are lured and secured into their disobedience because of others who, who think the same way as you do, or at least want you to think the same way. You know what David could have done? You know what David should have done? What you and I have to do at all points in life. This is a snare that is easily avoidable, and this is how you avoid it. Know what, God, know what God's word is, know what pleases God, and stick with it. That's it. I know it's not deep. I know it's not a quotable thing. But it's, it's something that we need to reinforce more and more. What pleases God? Know it, pursue it, and stick with it, no matter who you disappoint in the process. This verse came to mind. It's an easy reference, and it's a life verse among many life verses. Isaiah 2.22. It's very simple. You don't have to turn there. But Isaiah 2.22 makes this simple charge to all of us. Stop regarding man. That's, that's nice to put on a coffee cup, I think. Stop regarding man. Why? Whose nostrils is breath. Why? For of what account is he? What is he saying? He's not saying disrespect those who have been created in the image of God. No, he's saying stop regarding the threats, the persecutions, the persuasions of those who can't survive apart from oxygen, who can die if they are smothered for just a few seconds. Why would you put yourself in the position of being governed by something or someone like that instead allow your life to be governed by the one who created breath, who created oxygen, who is not dependent on anything in all of creation to survive and thrive, who is not thwarted in any way, who is not diminished in any way, who is not pushed in any direction. Fear Him. Live for Him. Subject yourself to His sovereignty. And stop regarding man. Stop considering what man thinks concerning what God has made so clear and you will avoid the snare that David unfortunately is entrapped by here. The compensation can only go so far because what David is about to do next is quite interesting. We talked about what? We talked about his commitment to compromise. We talked about his compensation for compromise, very short-lived. But now look at the complications of compromise. The complications of compromise. Where do you see that? The complications are found here in verse 24. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. What's David doing here? Does anybody have an idea? Listen, Joab brings him back from Geshur into his home city. And then David makes sure that Absalom would never have access to his presence again. Keep him in his own home. He's essentially ordaining and ordering house arrest. Why do you think David is doing this? Okay, so he's trying to maybe sound tough. Yes. And there's a reason for that. Yes. Okay, if he sees him, maybe he'll feel guilty and change his mind. Why do you think David is doing this? So 
David knows he's still in compromise. He's fully aware of the middle ground that he is playing on. And so what he's essentially trying to do by restricting Absalom, by putting him in house arrest, so to speak, is maintaining some kind of righteousness in the midst of his disobedience. So David here is actually trying to appease two types of people, two groups concerning this ordeal. Those who believe that Absalom should be free and to move about and and go on would realize that he was brought back to Jerusalem. So that's pretty good. And Joab was a part of that camp. While those who believe that Absalom should have been punished and should have received capital punishment would see that to some degree there is some kind of discipline taking place as David restricts his movements. This is complicated. Because compromise is a very complex thing for those who know the truth. And for those who know the truth and try to arrange their lives the way David does here, they can expect that by trying to calm their conscience, they will do something somewhat right while at the same time fully entertaining what they know to be wrong. That's an exhausting way of living. It's a very frustrating way of living for those who know the truth. And David is trying to do just that. And there are people, hopefully not here tonight, who try to doll up their disobedience by perfuming it with some kind of form of righteousness. And some of us use use that kind of tactic with so many avenues in life. So you do business in a shady way, but you give to a ministry. Let me use the example again of relationships where you tell you and your other lovely partner, we're not going to go past this, and you, you just calm your conscience because you never crossed that line, but you already crossed several lines before you got to that one. You have ministries that want to maintain some kind of growth, some kind of life in their ministry, so they feed sheep and they also feed the goats. And they try to do all that they can by avoiding that which would offend one or the other. And here's the lesson for you and I. It's a very important lesson based on David's foolishness here. That policy never works. It never works. What I mean by that is when you try to play on both teams, it will backfire on you. And it usually backfires from both sides, by the way. And when David here is trying to do that, he doesn't realize that he's actually setting himself up for for great pain and disappointment. And whenever you try to tolerate a sin that's symbolized in Absalom, that sin will not sit still for too long. Eventually, it will demand more from you. And so by trying to keep Absalom quiet and by trying to silence others who know of the whole situation, you are setting yourself up for great failure because the only solution to these issues is found in Revelation. Depart from Revelation and you will inherit much chaos. And that is precisely what you are prepared to see through Absalom's life. He will not stay in his position for too long Eventually, he is going to do something more, which is the nature of our sin 
does not stay in one place when we tolerate it. What is about to happen? You ready for this? Look at verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Can I be completely honest? What does that have to do with anything? So, so we, we have this scene, right? And it's suspenseful. Joab brings back Absalom. Absalom is David wants nothing to do with him. And then now we transition into a vignette of who Absalom is. And we are told about his beauty, and we're told about his hair, and we're told about the weight of his hair. We're told about how he goes to the barber once a year. And it's just like, how does this reconcile with the narrative? Well, this is not accidental, nor, nor is it sloppy authorship. This is intentional. And it's, it's preparing us for what is about to take place. For whatever reason, we're being told of the popularity of Absalom, and the popularity is tied into what? His appearance. And that from head to toe, there was not one defect in the man. He was gorgeous, apparently. He, just the sight of him swept people off their feet. His, his beauty was the talk of the nation, right? He was on the cover of the magazine of that time. Every year, supposedly. Is this information useful? And why is it important to understanding the whole text? Well, here's how you... I, well, you know what? Before I get there, why do you think it's important? Yeah, we're very drawn to charismatic, beautiful, talented people on a superficial level as well. Sure. Okay, so there's something about Absalom identifying something about himself that is vain. I think there's something there too. Yes. Okay. Okay, I know what you're saying, and I think you're right, but not in ties with David, and ties with somebody else. I'll explain in a moment. I'll take one more answer, and then we're going to move on. Did you have your hand up, Pinga? Yeah, why are you cutting your hair and making a public thing about it? Ah! His approach to people, how he presents himself to people, so the idea of how he cuts his hair says something about his character. You're right. The fact that we are being informed about Absalom's beauty should cause us to reflect not too far back of the last time someone's beauty was mentioned. When was the last time somebody's beauty was brought forth to us? Not Bathsheba. Not Saul, Tamar. Remember? Go to chapter 13, verse 1. 
and you'll see it. So it's there. We're told about David's daughter who was beautiful. Her name was Tamar. And isn't it interesting that the same Hebrew word for handsome appearance concerning Absalom is used for Tamar concerning her beauty. And so with that connection, with the the closest possible context in mind, when we were told about Tamar's beauty, what followed? Was it good or bad? Trouble lied ahead. And in the same way, we are being prepared as we are being told about Absalom's handsome appearance that there is danger before us. Something is going to happen based on the fact that Absalom was a good-looking guy. Did Israel have a reputation of electing leaders based on outward appearance? Yeah. And somebody mentioned the name of the one king, Saul, who was taller than everybody else and who was handsome, and, and that was attractive to the people, and so they dismissed any other deficiency, and they upheld him and regarded him as their leader though he was unqualified in many ways. And so with, with the distant context and the close context in mind, what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us with all of this is, hey, watch out. Something's about to happen. This is not a good thing. You know what would make an interesting Bible study? Maybe we'll do it one day. I don't know when we're going to do it, but I would love to do it. To go through the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation and study every person who we are informed about concerning their beauty. Wouldn't that be a good Bible study? Maybe you disagree. And I thought about it, and I thought, okay, well, we're not going to do a whole Bible study on that tonight, but when you think about those who are referred to for their good looks, a majority, if not all, are exclusively found in the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament emphasis. It's not important in the New Covenant, or the New Testament, rather except for reference to Moses concerning his appearance as a baby. So it's found in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is, in most cases about those who are beautiful, both man or woman, there was trouble connected to There was trouble. One, they were either exploited for their beauty, or two, they either took advantage of their appearance for selfish gain. So a major percentage of those who were beautiful, physically speaking, were actually in trouble, in connection to their beauty. Think of Sarah, even in her old age, what happened to her because of her husband. Think about Esther even, right? She was brought into the courts. I mean, that's not a safe environment to be in. We think about Tamar, right? We think about now even Absalom. And so... As we look at this, we have to understand that Absalom's beauty here is a problem, and it is because it will be used to win the allegiance of the nation. It will persuade the masses to fall into his trap. And the only difference between Absalom and Tamar is that Tamar was undeservingly the object of harm because of her beauty. In Absalom's case, he will utilize his beauty as a weapon to prey upon weak-minded people who can't think beyond skin and physical features. So Absalom here, concerning the description of his looks, 
is ready to show the trouble that will come with it. And beauty can blind us. And it will blind this nation because they will not care about the fact that he killed his half-brother. They want an idol. And in this case, the idol was a prince who was so charming and almost hypnotic with his physical appearance. And the main feature about Absalom's beauty has to do with his hair. And he cut the hair of his head once a year. At the end of the year, he would cut it because it would get so heavy. We're talking about a few pounds here. That's how dense and thick this man's hair was. And for whatever reason, he would cut his hair and report on it. And he would like write down what it weighed that year. And so he made a spectacle of it. He made an announcement of it. Why are you weighing your hair? It's very clear, and our, and our sister already brought it up. It's to signal the source of his pride. This man was proud of his looks. He was not only praised for his looks, he was very aware of it. He would use it, but he also praised himself for it. And he encouraged others to praise him for Wow, your hair weighed this much this year? That's incredible. And he was the envy of both men and women. And if you doubt that Absalom was doing this because of self-worship, then look at this one verse in just a few chapters we'll discover. Look at this verse that, that shows us and confirms us what kind of ap- man Absalom was. Look at chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, verse 18. This is after Absalom was killed in war. We're told now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Who sets up a pillar for himself while they're alive? Who, who, who does that? Who erects a memorial while you're living? It's weird. And it's only indicative of one thing, that you are a self-exalting, self-worshipping man. And so there is no doubt that the fact that he cut his hair and presented it, and I don't know what else he did with it. I cut my hair and I'm relieved. And I don't think about it for one second. This man made a shrine out of his hair. And not just out of his hair, he made a shrine for himself. He wanted to be remembered, even after his death. So here's what's happening with verse 25 and verse 26. The Holy Spirit brings this to our attention. Absalom's striking looks and his luscious hair as a preface of an upcoming rebellion and ultimately his downfall. We are being prepared for Absalom usurping the authority of his father by seducing the nation and his ultimate downfall because you can't have pride and survive. In God's economy and in God's universe, there is a law and it is as strong and as as the law of gravity. If you're proud, God will be against you. And at one point, he will find a way to bring you down. And this man is headed in that direction because we are not going to see any sign of repentance anytime soon or later. Look what happens in verse 28. 
Well, let's read verse 27. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. That, that's just another sad thing to see because we read in 2 Samuel 18, verse 18, what? That he apparently had no son to keep his name in remembrance. But we were told early on that he had three. They must have died in infancy. They must have died at a very young age. He memorialized his sister Tamar by naming one of his daughters by her, and it's, I think, the Holy Spirit's way of kind of giving us some closure concerning her. Right? That her brother showed some kind of respect to her, though her other brother violated her. And then in verse 28 we read, So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Two full years. His patience word out, right? He's not doing this anymore. So in verse 29, that Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. So after two full years, Absalom said, enough is enough. I'm not living this way. I'm going to make a move to try to get before my father. Now that seems like a noble desire, but it's questionable because we know this man's character. If you feel like this is a small move on a chessboard of a grander scheme, you're right. This is not about Absalom wanting to restore his relationship with his dad. This is Absalom wanting to recover his public image. And what he's going to need for the public image for, for his persuasion plan is the approval of his father. He's not getting it. His father made no moves in two years. We learned already that Absalom was a very patient man. He was willing to wait two years to kill his brother. He's willing to wait two years to see something happen with his father. No sign of hope. And so he's going to initiate something. And so he picks up the phone. He calls Joab. Voicemail. Picks up the phone again. Calls Joab. Voicemail again. After two times sending the servants, he realized this man is deliberately ignoring me. He wants nothing to do with me. I read that today and I thought to myself, why Joab? Why after going to such great lengths to convince the king to bring your son back to Jerusalem, would you not continue the process and bring David and Absalom back together without tension, without separation? Why do you think Joab is not answering the phone? Yeah, this is a very tricky situation. It's clear that David doesn't want to even entertain the thought of Absalom becoming the heir to the throne. I just I did what I could up to this point. I don't want to get involved with it. That could be true. Yes. Yeah, maybe this was enough to satisfy David's struggle. He's in close proximity. That's enough. I've done my job. There's no need to, to try to advance or make this more heartfelt than it needs to be, perhaps. We're not told why Joab is not answering the phone. 
But one thing I do know about his neglect is that he was not really concerned about true reconciliation between David and his son. He was, he was not about actually there being some kind of restorative work. He could care less. And it could be that what he really had in mind, I mean, we can speculate, right? But it could be that what Joab was doing was a military strategy more than anything else. That he was concerned of Absalom's distance and not being aware of his movements. And so he fulfills that ancient adage, right? Keep your friends close, but who closer? Your enemies closer. Let's just bring him close enough so that we can supervise him. But we don't need to make this whole thing uh, about reconciliation and having each other over again. Just let's just have him near so that we can watch him and make sure that he doesn't cause any trouble. That could be very true as well. But you know what I find kind of funny? That Job, after trying to convince David to bring Absalom back, uh, ends up being annoyed by this very same person that he attempted to bring back. And it goes to show that man-made philosophy and human wisdom and cleverness uh, never brings about true resolution. It, it only agitates things. It only frustrates things. It only brings more pain than anything else. And Job's going to learn that lesson in a more grievous way in a second here. So this was all Joab's idea. Now Joab is paying the price for his idea because he's being harassed by Absalom. And so we already seeing early signs that this was not a good idea. If you had just stuck with God's word, you would have nipped this thing. But now it's taking on its own life. Now it's germinating and it's spreading and it's about to get out of control. And look what happens next. This is what happens when you don't answer your phone. In Absalom's life, in Absalom's worldview, in verse 30, then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. What, what, how can we make that uh, equivalent and relevant today? Okay, you didn't answer my phone, Pastor Daniel. It's been, it's been two days. Uh, I'm going to have somebody break into your car. That will get your attention. I'm going to leave a note. Answer my phone calls. That's essentially what's happening. He sets the man's field on fire, and that gets his attention. Joab all for a sudden appears, right? All of a sudden he's there. He makes his way to Absalom's home, and he asks the question. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? It goes to show what kind of man Absalom was. It just gives us another hint of how he deals with issues and how he gets what he wants. He's spoiled. He's not patient. He's easily aggravated. And when he doesn't get his way, he will do whatever he needs to do to get his way. And it worked, at least in a carnal way. Joab comes and he asks what he wants. And as despicable as these actions are, they do testify something about human nature, does it not? And I'm not talking about how, like Absalom, people become insensitive when they're squeezed and when they don't have what they really, really want. I'm not talking about that. I'm actually talking about Joab. Saying, what do you mean? It was Spurgeon, of course, who made the masterful observation 
concerning Joab. That when God tries to get our attention and we don't answer Him, He often sends fires to get our attention. And so He, he takes this example and He applies it to our relationship with God. And one might say, well, how can you apply this to God? What Absalom did was wrong. It was evil. It's arson. Well, the only reason why what Absalom did was wrong was because he burned someone else's property. The difference is with God, he owns everything. Everything you have belongs to God. Whether you admit it or not, it's his. He gives and he takes away and with that truth, we say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so when God does send things that make us uncomfortable or that seems unfair, that seems counterintuitive to our desires, who's Lord here? He's Lord. And I thought it was a brilliant observation to say, yes, it is true that you and I are capable of deviating from God, walking away from God, ignoring God, and when He makes appeals to us over and over again through His grace, through His messengers, through nudges, and we still keep our back toward Him, He will send some trials. He will afflict us. He will allow the alarms to go off in life so that you can come where you are supposed to remain, and that is before Him. And Joab exemplifies that. You know, the Scripture warns us, just in case you think that this is reading too much into this story, the Scripture warns us in many ways of how when you and I choose to be headstrong, God has in His arsenal of wisdom very interesting means to make us seek Him again. Joab's stubbornness here, though we can justify it, is not justified in our walk with the Lord. When we neglect His presence, when we neglect His duty, if you really belong to Him, He will discipline you for the sole purpose of bringing you back to Him and then you again walking in His plan and purpose as a priority. If you are a sinner who is not a child of God, do you know what one of the evidences is that you do not belong to Him? You will continue to sin and God will leave you alone. You'll continue to ignore Him and go weeks and months without spending time with Him, without being in the house of God. And one of the signs that you are an illegitimate child is that you will prosper and that you will go on without any divine intervention for the sole purpose of bringing you back to His chambers. And if you want proof of that, here's one of the strongest examples in Psalm 32. Verse 9, here's the instruction from David, funny enough, in the context of confessing his sin. And people believe Psalm 32 is the psalm that David wrote before he confessed his sin after Nathan confronted him. Psalm 51 is attributed to David's confession. People believe Psalm 32 is attributed to that period where he was concealing his sin and refused to come before God. And look what we read here in verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, 
or it will not stay near you. He, he alludes to two stubborn animals, horse or mules, that tend to go off in their own way, that tend to not stay in place, but become independent very easily and wander off. And he's saying, please don't be like that. Don't be stubborn like that. Because those kind of animals require instruments to anchor them and to keep them and to bring them where the owner would want them to be. Or else they won't stay near you. And unfortunately, this, this verse describes a category of the children of God. Not all children of God, but a category of the children of God. Where the only way they can actually stay near God is when they are enduring a tragedy. The only way their prayer life survives is if there are problems. The only way they become serious about serving the Lord is when they come into contact with the fickleness of life and the brevity of their existence. And they they come into contact with something that shakes them and terrifies them and hurts them even. That is the only time where they're serious about their spirituality. And here's what we can, this, that's, this is an insight, but there's also an application because he's saying, don't be like that. You know what that tells me? That every single one of us here have the ability to reduce certain trials and sufferings by doing one simple thing. You ready for this? Staying near God when all is well. What this verse tells me is that there are prescribed problems ordained and signed off in heaven that I can avoid if I simply know how to walk with Jesus when all is well. Not only when all is hell, but when all is well. And if you are a person that only knows how to hit their knees because you know that something is happening or something is about to happen and it's not in your favor, then expect a lifetime of bridles and bits being placed upon you by loving God in order to keep you near Him. I don't want that. I, I, I don't object to God's sovereign ways in my life, but if there is a way in which I can avoid unnecessary discipline, then Lord, teach me to love you and to serve you and to know you and to pursue you even when nothing is going wrong. See, what God wants from us is more than just an emergency kind of relationship. He wants more than that. Now, many people have reduced their walk with the Lord to that. that, That's not going to fly with God. If you really belong to Him, if you're truly a child of God, He will know how to implement the exact thing you need to make you crawl back to Him if need be. And so in Joab, in an indirect way, is an example of that. Joab, I need you. Ah. Joab, you haven't spent time with me. Ah. Joab, it's been a while since you've come to the house of God. Ah. Joab, you haven't served me with your gifts yet. You want to make more money than you want to make more disciples. Ah. All right. Here's a fire. Oh God, I'm here now. I'm a, I, I worship you, Almighty God. There is none like you. Can you extinguish this for me? And he graciously does. Then a few months go by, and there you are again. 
All right, let's set another field on fire. Oh, Lord, I'm here again. Brothers, sisters, can you fast and pray for me? Okay, let's do this. What a, what a way to walk with Jesus. That's not what God wants. That's not God's plan for you. That doesn't mean we can't call upon Him when times are tough. But to call upon Him only when times are tough is not why the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so Joab hears him out in verse 31. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have, you, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I send word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have, have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Finally, Joab comes into the presence of Absalom, and here's the request. Plain and simple. I want the presence of the king. And again, this comes off as a noble desire, but we have every right to question his motive. And what's more disturbing than his desire to be in the king's presence is Absalom's personal and self-assessment of his status. Before the king, before the law, before God. Did you catch it? Look at the wording. What does he say at the last part of verse 32? And if there is guilt in me. If there is guilt. Hey, Absalom, newsflash. There is guilt in you. There's no ifs here. There's no debate. You're murder, cold-blooded. How do you have the gall to even make that a matter of debate? If there is any guilt in me. You're guilty. And everyone knows it. And what this shows is that Absalom really believed that he was justified in murdering his half-brother. Like he actually was comforted by fulfilling his murderous and vicious desires. And that kind of self-deception and self-righteousness might work with a man like King David, but it will not work with the king of kings. It won't. Unlike Absalom, in order for us to be recovered into the presence of God and to know reconciliation with God, we must be honest about what it is that separates us from God. God requires honesty. And people usually quote verses, but they chop up those verses, not realizing the full implication of what those verses, especially promises, entail. So here's one. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Amen. We love that. I love that. That should make us sing. But you forgot the first part. What was the first part? If we confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a, there's a contingency here. God's faithfulness to forgive us and to cleanse us depends upon our willingness to confess our sins. No confession, no forgiveness. No confession, no reconciliation. He waits upon our confession. And co confession requires honesty. Honesty. God, this is what I am. This is what I've done. Will you forgive me? 
See, when we blame others for our own sins, we nullify the potential grace of God being poured out on us. Why? Because God wants to forgive you. And if you don't confess what you have done but project it on others, God is willing to forgive them if they confess, but he won't forgive you. So you must be honest before God. And this is what Absalom lacked, obviously. And he wasn't just dishonest about his sin. He was dishonest about his honor to the king. Look what happens. Verse 33, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. What a showman. He bowed himself to the king, and he shows honor to the king. You know what's happening in his heart? Bitterness against the very same man that he's bowing before. In the very next chapter, he's going to conspire against his father and attempt to kill him and all his other potential threats. Bitterness in his heart. Justification for his sin. And he has the audacity to come and bring homage to him. And David couldn't see past it. David fell for it. But again, God sees what man cannot see. And before the Lord looks at our hands, our lips, our movements, our tears, he looks at our hearts. And he evaluates everything based on the hidden most parts of who we are. And in this case, though it worked for King David, it would not work with King Jesus. And it's not difficult to contrast this example before us of a son seeking restoration with his father, seeking restoration with his status, with a New Testament favorite of many. The prodigal son. The prodigal son. Different in its own way, but similar. One of the similarities is, in this real story and in that parable, you have a kiss from a father for his son. David kisses Absalom. In the parable of the prodigal son, you have the father who leaps on the neck of his son and kisses him. Here's the difference. One is legitimate, the other is illegitimate. One is true restoration, the other is empty. And instead of ending this Bible study looking at how we can fail to receive restoration in our relationship with God, let's look at how we can. So let's end this Bible study in Luke chapter 15. And I want you to see something that I hope will bless you. Will bless the believer, bless the non-believer. In Luke chapter 15, let's go to verse 17. I wish we can read the whole thing, but we won't be able to. Luke 15, verse 17. The son already asked for his inheritance. He went to spoil all that he had received from his father. A drought comes, he loses everything, and he's now at the level of pigs. And something happens to this young man in verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with my hunger. You won't even begin to realize your need for God until you realize how destitute you are right now. And that is why when we present the truth, We don't just tell people about a loving God, right? Because how they interpret that is, well, that's great. I think I have room for this loving God. No, you have to remind them of their filth. 
and that they are not children of God that needs to make more time for daddy. They are rebels. They are under the wrath of God. They will be judged for eternity. And there is only one Savior who can rescue them from such a place and such a future and such a fate. This man realized his destitute condition, but look what he says in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What is beautiful about that confession? Humility is displayed. In what ways is humility displayed in this confession? Yeah, don't treat me the way I, don't treat me as a son. I'm not even worthy to be your son. That's one. But the point that I'm trying to make is the omission of something in this confession. What is omitted in this confession? Yeah, heaven and you, that's great, yeah. But what is missing in this that is usually present in our confessions? Excuses. Excuses. The buts and the ifs. Lord, I, Father, I have sinned against you, but look, I, I'm a young man. My hormones get out of control sometimes. I just didn't see how this would all end up. I didn't realize the disrespect I was showing you. I, you know, just boys will be boys, right, Father? You get it how it is, right? You were a boy once. None of that stuff. None of that stuff. It, well, it's partially his fault. She has a part to play in it. Nothing. I have sinned. Plain and simple, I'm wrong. I'm guilty. That is what moves the heart of God. That kind of humility, that kind of honesty. And that is required, just like in Absalom's case. right? He, he was missing that honesty. And what, what is needed to even know the, the first steps of reconciliation with God is just that. That transparency, that humility that does not try to even Justify one part of who you are, but just comes as you are. But look at the second thing. Where did the son say he would go when he realized where he was? When he was awakened to the, the disaster of a life that he was in? I will go where? I will arise, verse 18, and go where? To my room? To my warm bed? To my job? To my siblings? To my friends? I will go where? To my father. True confession, true repentance prioritizes the relationship that you want with God. That's true repentance. When people repent and say, oh, you know, I want to come back to my family, that's a fringe thing. I want to come back to my Christian community, that's a fringe thing. I want to come back to church, that's a fringe thing. The first thing that you should be concerned about in your sin and when you want to turn from your sin is, I want God. I want Him again. I want to walk with Him again. I want to know Him again. I want His favor to shine upon me again. I want to know that I'm pleasing Him again. That is very much missing in people's confession and repentance. I've seen it. I've heard it with my own eyes, my own ears. Throughout the years, you see people remorseful when they are in the wrong. And what, what do they tend to emphasize? I hurt my wife. I hurt my kids. I lost my job. I hurt my pastor. I hurt my fellowship. That's fine. But it, you know who's missing in all of that? God. And it tends to always be the case. I have very little hurt when people come with confession. I've broken God's heart in this. 
And that is the complete opposite of what David shows in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned. So there's a worldly sorrow, right? There's a worldly sorrow that looks at the earthly and horizontal consequences of our wrong. And there's a godly sorrow. And one of the signs of godly sorrow is that you know you've offended God. And you want to be restored to God. And here we see the prodigal saying, I will go to my father. I will go to my father. And lastly, we see something that is important that is maybe overlooked. The son actually got up and went. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. He rose and came to his father. Some people stop at honesty and self-awareness. Many people who are backslidden and many people who are sinners, they know they're in sin. They know that they're in the wrong. They know that they're not in the will of God. They know it. They tell themselves that. They come to a meeting like this, and after the service, you talk to them and say, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm not doing the best. I'm not in the will of God. And they know that, and they'll confess that. But God doesn't want you to stop there. And that's not, what gonna, that's not what's going to bring reconciliation to you. You have to actually make the move and say, okay, now I'm going to actually turn from this thing that I'm wallowing in and make my way before the presence of God. Right? And so you can think about how you're wrong. You can rehearse how you're in disobedience. You can stay up all night all you want. But the thing that will change is when you say, okay, enough is enough. Now i got to actually come to him. And speak to him. And open my heart before him and spill everything out and trust that he will accept me and he will accept you. It's not enough to know that you are in the wrong. It's time to repent. And the way we know that he repents is, as our brother said, he, he tells himself, when I come to him, I'm going to say, I'm unworthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. You know how I translate that? As I come to you, do with me as you please. Whatever you see fit for me, I will accept. And you fashion me and you ordain for me whatever you desire. Because I tried doing it my way. I tried or orchestrating my life according to my wisdom and my pleasures and I failed. I come to you now. And the other translations, this translation the ESV says, treat me. Other translations say, make me. Make me, make me, make me. Following humble, honest confession is genuine, sincere repentance. And what repentance looks like is, it's your way, not mine. You tell me what to do. You tell me where to go. I'm no longer walking the way I want to walk. You are now the sovereign Lord of my life. Grace, you will empower me to live and love you. That's true confession. And what do you have? You have a father who showed his love. Embraced him. Didn't even let him finish his whole presentation because the father knew his actions. The actions spoke louder than the words. He was not waiting for this elaborate speech. The fact that he came dragging his feet was enough for the father to see past everything that he could have said and said, you want to come back, don't you? And here's where we can end tonight, that if there's anybody in this place who desires true reconciliation with the anointed one, the one that David points to, the son of David, the Messiah, 
the resurrected king who reigns on high tonight. And here's what I call you to do. Be honest about your sin and your condition. Don't try to decorate it. Don't try to lighten the severity of it. Just come honest before God. And as you come honest before God, also come to God as the object of your desire. And from there, be willing and confess your willingness for God to fashion you and make you and do with you as He pleases. And you will know a legitimate, comforting, reassuring embrace from God that will secure you and overwhelm you with His mercy in a way that will motivate you to live holy unlike anything else. David gives this kiss of approval to Absalom and it will really be the kiss of death. Because that's all Absalom needed to continue with his agenda to persuade a nation to come against his father. Aren't you glad that as great of a man David was, our God is greater? People wonder, what is the point of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings? awesome stories but every time you and I face a king no matter how great or treacherous they were it's to remind us every king will fail you every leader will let you down no matter how powerful no matter how impressive no matter how beautiful no matter how wise no matter how strategic no matter how prosperous no matter how administrative they are they will fall short and it's supposed to cause in you an ache to say, is there not a perfect king? Is there not a true king that will be lasting in his righteousness, consistent with his character, promising with his provision, an example that I can follow, someone that I can worship? I remember being on a flight in my early years of walking with the Lord, and I had a friend beside me. We were coming from a conference. Well, those were the days, man. If you're young in here, can I just give you some advice? If you're young in here and you have not yet entered into the chapter of life where you have more responsibility than as a single person does, or a student does, not, I'm not negating the fact you have responsibilities, can I tell you something? Take advantage of that season of life. Grab a handful of brothers or sisters and just go hard after God. Like, just go to, go to those conferences. Get in a car and drive to another state for the sole purpose of worshiping God and being with God's people. Serve with everything within you. Just go for it. I praise God for those times. Anyways, just reminiscing. We're flying back from a conference on good old Spirit Airlines. And as we're flying back into Canada... I looked over to my friend and he had tears in his eyes and he had his Bible open before him with whatever tray was there. I said, what's wrong? He goes, I'm reading First and Second Kings. I said, okay. He goes, just failure after failure. Disappointment after disappointment. Just one botched leader following the next. And we looked at each other and we said, well, isn't that the point? We serve one who will never fail us, who is constant, who is the same, who will rule and reign in righteousness. 
who will order his steps and determine his direction in such a manner that no one can point and find fault in him. That is the king that we serve. And as you hear this Bible study, as we prepare to even go into 1 Kings and 2 Kings in a few weeks and months, let that be the, the banner of that Bible study. There is one true king who is alive and well and will return very soon. And when he comes, we will say, ah, here he is, the one that we have been waiting for. Lord, we do love you and we thank you. We worship you tonight. With so much that has been said, we do not pray now with absent-mindedness. We are fully aware of every word that was uttered, every insight that was shared. Lord, we look at you as the true and living King, and we are happy, blessed to know that you are unlike any other. Lord, if there's anyone here who has made a commitment to compromise, if there's anyone here who is entertaining that commitment due to small and meaningless compensation, Lord, if there's anyone who is now experiencing the complications of compromise, may they know now, may they know at this very instant that they can change, the course can be altered. And Lord, if there's anyone here who, who knows that they are in the wrong but they don't know how to make their way back to you. Oh Lord, may the prodigal son be our model. And may we realize that all you require is honesty. And all you ask is for us to make you the object of our desire. And all you look for is for us to say, make me as you would make me. Treat me as you would treat me. And Lord, may that same person be comforted to realize that the experience of that prodigal son is our inheritance as well in the gospel that you will embrace us, you will clothe us, and you will celebrate our repentance. Lord, we do worship you tonight. We thank you for what you have said to us. Now we say back to you how much we love you in song, more importantly in the way we live. Help us by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together in closing.